official sliding on the instrumental Nordic combos twist your mental like forbidden peace to the public and power to the people what up world where we are at with it today is the space where the vulnerable are powerful and where the most gangster thing you could do is serve this is the Ottawa live podcast Every single week, my brother Miles Xavier and I dedicate ourselves to giving y'all that carefully curated content. And we do it consistently. And we do it for one reason and one reason only, man. We do it because we know that people are going through it in life, man. We know that people are suffering from mental illness. People are going through depression. People are feeling lonely. People are, are feeling isolated, man. And so we come here and we curate a space of positivity for y'all. We dedicate ourselves to research, getting super fly content. We break it down. And this week is super special, man. Um, and, and you know, I hope nobody mistakes my positive entry, my positive um, introduction to the show away from the fact that one of my extended cousins took his life this week, man. So, uh, you know, one of the big reasons why Miles and I got back on the show to do it is because I had lost another cousin to um, who succumbed to depression. And so, you know, the promise that I made at that particular point was to say that this show is going to be for those people uh, that are going through it and they need a little bit of a pick-me-up to get them through their day, man. So rest in peace to Jacob Zabel, rest in peace to Tejo, rest in peace to Tabang. You guys are not forgotten. And we do this show for y'all and we do this show for the people that stay tuning in, man. Yeah, big facts. That's beautiful, bro. That's beautiful, man. And um, yeah, just just being intentional about being here with you today to 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 share and to you know to do this thing because it definitely lifts me up it definitely heals me so may today be a, a healing conversation for you too um and 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 may your family have peace and and be able to move forward um hold your heads man it's crazy out here it's crazy way too many rips that we're gonna get into this week um but before all of that before any of that we gotta acknowledge that exodus and building in a big way, uh, not only by way of Johannesburg with my brother Zoe over there, but also my man Hassan on the boards. Appreciate you. Can't do this thing without you. Uh, Can do it. And on this side, you already know what's going on. Chicago is in the building. This podcast is recorded on stolen land, land, and that's big facts, right? This land was cared for by the Potawatomi people. That's the First Nations people. Uh, and the violence done to remove them from this land is inseparable from the violence that we see in this city today, this country today, this world today. I see a lot of uh, First Nations culture being adopted and co-opted, uh, style, fashion, uh, even food, right? Trendy diets based on First Nations, the way that folks eat. So if we're going to uh, continue to live off this land that that they cared for, uh, and if we're going to continue to take from their culture and build on it, and we, we need to acknowledge where it comes from uh, and acknowledge our history in order to move forward, that's why we do that. Uh, and that's how we end the intro with lifting up love for indigenous people the world over, lifting up love for black and brown people the world over, and lifting up love for y'all wherever y'all at in the world. Intro over. Let's get into the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. But is we live, though? Is we, like, all the way live, though? You heard? Just to remind y'all that this is indeed a live show. And on this live show, um, we 
encourage absolutely everybody to continue to comment into the comment section if you're there. Um, engage in the conversation. Keep y'all engaged. Um, my brother Miles Xavier and I are activists and community organizers within our own rights and within our own communities. And one of the things that we have pleasure to do with this show is being able to highlight the people that do impact work. We say that the Live House Nation and the Live House family is where impact meets art. You saw Malik Roberts, who my brother introduced us to last week. You've seen the different uh, impact spotlights that we've been doing, man. And this week ain't no different. We got a specific um, impact spotlight highlighting Smiley News. Smiley News. So yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Smiley News, man. You know, for all your uh, impact-based information needs, go check them out. Follow them on Instagram. Uh, we appreciate them for supporting uh, a little initiative we got going on. Tell them, we bro. We did indeed. We did indeed, man. Um, Smiley News came through in a big way, and I'm sure we'll get a picture of uh, the article that they did this week. They, it's a, ex, it's a Devon-based, it's a Devon-based online publication and they specifically focus on highlighting just positive news man the news is overrun with negative news and so they do just positive news and it was very cool was able to reach out to them and they were like hey uh you know we love the work that you guys are doing at the mandulo foundation and we'd love to highlight it and they gave us this opportunity this little spread look at my my boy chilla over there on the boards shout out to our producer for for pulling all of this stuff up um yeah man it's cool it's it's cool to get the word out you know we're trying to get laptops to kids yeah and laptops are a transformative tool bro like i remember i remember getting one specifically to go off to school and i feel like it's been enough time since then now as i'm getting old that it's you start to take it for granted but now that my laptop is on the fritz now that this mug might be like clocking out on me uh you need this in this day and age, like to even to compete, whether it's making a resume, whether it's uh, answering emails, whether it's Zoom calls, like a laptop is a tool that you need to be able to participate in a professional world in any type of way, even in the academic world. So to be able to give that tool to kids um, means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to all the folks at Mandulo. So it's dope to be able to amplify um, the message. And if you got a laptop that works um, and you and, and that you're in a position to donate or um, can hook us up with anybody that might be able to support this laptop drive initiative, we'll take phones, we'll take, you got iPods, I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? It never hurts to ask. So, so we're just trying to amplify this and make sure that everybody has access to the tools they need for success. Indeed. And you know, once COVID happened, what what ended up happening is that a lot of online it became an online-based learning. And so you think about the communities in Gatleong, in Soweto, in uh Southside Chicago, a lot of these kids they they do not have access to internet at home or do not have access to internet in a way that can allow them to access um to access uh education right and so they're kind of put in a place where they have to rely on either mom's laptop and if mom doesn't have a laptop or mom doesn't have a computer don't have internet they're in a bit of a predicament so us what we've been seeing in these communities is that a lot of kids are getting left behind bro like a lot of kids are now a year or two back in school that is it, it means a lot now but what does that mean for the job market 10, 15 years from now, when those are the people that are supposed to be entering the job market. You know, so um, we're, we're very fortunate to be in a position where we can see and are exposed to what 
our communities are going through. We're even more fortunate to the fact that there have been donors already. We've already handed our laptops. We've handed out scholarships. We're about to hand out even more of those things coming into the year, man. And there's no better feeling than doing this type of work. So we encourage absolutely everybody to, to join the family of servitude, uh, be part of the Livehouse Nation and help us uh, help us help some kids. There it is. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yo, we have a heavy show today. We have a heavy show, a fullest show of things to be able to talk about. We're going to be unpacking the baby shortage formula. It's a it's a kids-based show, but unfortunately for the wrong reasons. And I'm trying to stay positive about it because what we're going to talk about is so dark, bro. Yeah, man, I appreciate you bringing the, the uplifting energy to it. Um, it's tough, man. This is, this is definitely, uh, it feels like a time where uh, laugh to keep from crying is more true than ever. But we're going to get through it, man. That's what we do on the show is we try and make sense of the world. We, we react to this stuff in real time. Um, and wherever the conversation takes us, you know, we family. So we eye it up in here. And what we do is give y'all information that sounds smart around your friends with. Don't forget that. <laughs> let's, get <laughs> into, let's get into it. Yo, man, there's a, um, there's a saying. Actually, I would be interested to know if you're familiar with it because um, it, it's rooted, uh, I think, in an African proverb. Um, not that every dude from Africa knows every African proverb, but let me know if, you, if you've ever heard this. Um, there's a way of asking how things are, how you are, how's, how's things, by asking how are the children, Right. And it's like, it's deeper than like, how are your kids? It's like, it's a, it's a way of asking, how is the society doing? You know? And I just always thought that that was fire. Um, and so I find myself in a position where if someone to ask, were to ask me that question, how are the children, right? How is your society, America, Chicago, my community, South Shore? And on a lot of those levels, uh, kids ain't all right bro the kids ain't all right it's a lot it's a it's a hard knock life it would be a hard time to be a shorty right now um especially a super shorty right there's a baby formula shortage that's making it difficult for mothers to to provide even the most basic needs to their to their children and that's crazy um that's nuts as as a non-parent as a pre-parent i'm scared Pre-parent? I've never heard the term pre-parent before. And technically, anyone that does have kids is a pre-parent. No, not necessarily. I'm, I'm somebody who wants kids, so there's that distinction. But I was labeled a pre-parent. Um, if you're in the Chicagoland area, we are convening parents. Parent University at uh, the former Price Elementary School, 43rd and Drexel, Drexel. Pull up on us. We feeding. We got Chick-fil-A in the mornings for everybody. It's breakfast, and we getting parents together, building resources. Since I don't have kids, but I'm helping to convene that space, they labeled me a pre-parent. So I've been running with that. Um, and as somebody who, yeah, I think I do want kids one day, uh, I look at a situation like this and go, first of all, I don't know nothing. I don't know enough to have kids. That's 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 number one, because I don't know how to respond to this baby formula shortage. I don't know what I would do. I would just be mixing up milk. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to react to this. Um, but also that, like, yeah, man, these this supply shortage i was heated because i couldn't get a ps5 but clearly it's affecting things much deeper than that even you know 
So big kids and small kids are being impacted by shortages. And this particular shortage has been brought on by um, a few different factors, right? Now, the main important storyline of the shortage, of the baby formula shortage, is that there has been a detection of some, um, of, of some, let's call it uh, viruses and uh, bacteria that were found in the companies that make, in one of the companies that make baby formula. And what ends up happening then is that we got we now get exposed to the back end of how the baby formula industry works and surprise surprise as you might find it there's only a few there's only four companies that control the whole baby formula market in the US specifically in this case you had Abbott Nutrition which produces the likes of Similac like we have over here on the page who controls 45% of the entire formula market and so a bacteria outbreak of sepsis of chronobacter i didn't even know what chronobacter was but i don't want it around baby food is what i know that was found and uh, a recall has since happened compound that with uh supply logistics that are brought on by covid and you have a baby shortage apparently yeah man there's a so i want to highlight a couple things that you said in there right like you said the number one company controls 42 percent. did you say that 45% of the market. So that that illustrates to me, I guess, why we can hear about one company having a recall, but see empty shelves across the across the board. Uh, it's feeling very cartelish. Is everything a cartel? Like it, behind everything, oil, gas, cartel, baby formula. It's looking real cartelish. This is, are we gonna uncover a cartel at the root of, <laughs> at the root did. of everything? We Bruh. just did, and this is another one. This is indeed another cartel, right? They control 45% of the total market. So this chrono back, there's, there's actually a history um, of when it was alerted that there was some some quality control issues within specifically their Michigan um, their Michigan plant, right? So this is where the, the chrono back that broke out from is their Michigan plant. And so the recalls have been for foods that are coming out of that plant. But clearly this plant is working like Jimmy Buckets in game six, 45, putting up 45%, you know? And so the recall that has since happened for um, products such as Similac, Alimentum, and Elcor, which all powdered formula have been, are getting recalled because of uh, some of the reports on babies getting sick. Dang. So what that tells me is that nothing is safe because you said the factories in Michigan, yep. we making this. If we can't even put stuff we making here on our shelves, we are in deep trouble, right? Because I know that there's supply shortages across a whole bunch of other industries. I found out what a semiconductor was, did not know what that was pre-pandemic, found out real quick that it's in everything pretty much. Uh, and we're really struggling to... Uh, yeah, feel the need for those in the automotive industry and the tech industry, uh, even air conditioners. So it's crazy to see this, um, these supply chain issues kind of, we're getting bodied on both sides, right? We, we're getting hit on the, on trying to import and export stuff. And we're getting hit even on issues on stuff we make here in the country. What is the solution? How do we feed these babies? So part of the issue is the fact that too much of it is being made over here. So 98% of all the formula that is made or consumed in the U.S. is made in the U.S. And um, more concerningly, when you think about uh, the lack of being able to get things to get imported in, what 
the, the scariest thing for me out of all of this is that um, Abbott has the contract to uh, Abbott has a contract, exclusive contract to feed low income households with their baby formula. So if we're being if we're seeing the reports now of what has been happening, um, of what has been happening to some of these kids, you can only assume that there's been so many more that have been impacted. But because of their income, because they're from low income households, they probably haven't been reported. So this whole story even starts with a whistleblower in September of 2020 coming out and saying, Ayo, the way that these the conditions in these houses make no the conditions in these uh plants are are nasty and there's a uh, bacteria around and it's going into baby food. And they said this in September of 20 um in September of 2020. And the on, an official review was only done six months later, you know? So the question then becomes how efficient do we expect organizations like the FDA to be in being able to make sure that this doesn't happen. Yeah. I think for the awareness to happen in September and we're only feeling the effects of it now speaks to just a, a knot of bureaucracy that's clearly like failing in, in, in several ways. But on the other hand, you gotta, it, it is deep, right? If we want the institutions that are supposed to scrutinize and make sure things are safe, to look at anything closely is what we feed in babies, right? So we want that system to be on point. Um, clearly it's not. Uh, dang, man, you said we make, what, 98% of the baby mm -hmm. formula we consume? We got to diversify that portfolio now. I'm all with, you know, giving, make, creating jobs domestically and all that. But you got to diversify a little bit. And um, that seems to be kind of what we're in the position that we've been forced. That's what we've been forced to do in this position. Um, the response at this point has been to import baby formula from Germany. So they got the U.S. Air Force loading up with bricks of baby formula, and they come in. <laughs> <laughs> They're over there at the border cutting them open. This is some like, get it in here. Get it in here. <laughs> hey, man, that's the time. Nice. <laughs> hey, bro. It's, it's, it's getting crazy out there. It's lots of dudes, I'm sure, in Hawaiian T-shirts that's that's caking off of that bootleg formula. You know, I got that for you. It's uncut, not stepped on. If you see, and that and that poses a big issue, and shout out to our producer for pulling up some alternatives over here. One of the things that the FDA says is, Ayo, we know that there's a shortage, but please be careful in your homemade remedies on what you're feeding your kids. Now, as my brother Miles said, we're pre-parents, meaning... We don't really, we don't have kids at all that he knows of, that I know for a fact that I don't have any kids, right? But <laughs> a lot of, I remember recently, Summer Walker came under scrutiny because she was saying, just feed your kids veggies and that should be okay. And people were like, yo, don't do that. Do not just feed your kids veggies, right? So one of the things that the FDA has said is be careful in the alternatives that you seek to feed your kids. But one thing is a fact is that this controlled market right now has was allowed to operate for months on months on months on months with a long list of complaints happening that these kids are getting seriously, seriously ill. The FDA was unable to step in at, was unable to step in efficiently enough. And now we're at a place where, um, like you said, Germany is sending it through, Australia is sending it through. If I was in my position now, bro, I don't even know what I'd feed my kid. Word. And I, yeah, again, shout out to Hassan for pulling this up because this right here, this is for me. This is a PSA for people's brains who work like my brain that would go, we were once cavemen. And at that point, 
we ain't had no Similac. And all we had was raw veggies and we and our kids made it, right? So in my brain, I'm going, we got the tools, we can figure this out. But nothing is more important. Nothing do you want to be more sure what you're doing than with the help of a child that's in your care. So this is, I'm glad there is something for people who's got a simple brain like mine that would go straight to milk is milk. And if you crush it up, it's baby food, <laughs> you know. No, that is that is not how that works. Incorrect. Please, by all means, out of all the things that we say on this show, specifically disregard that one that Miles just said. Do not just feed your kids dry milk. No, that, that's that. what I was saying. <laughs> I wasn't advising people to do that. I was saying that this list is specifically for people that think like me. Don't do that. I was just being vulnerable, man. I heard that they were powerful. You're not, you're not wrong. But one thing for a fact is that baby food is super expensive. Baby food is is outrageously expensive, right. man. If if you ever wanna um if you ever wanna find a cheap contraceptive, is just walk through the baby out. Look, look at the, the baby formula prices. Just take a gander. See, see, see what that looks like right now. It was, baby food is the price of bricks of cocaine. Bruh, regular food is the price of bricks of cocaine, no doubt. Like it's high out here. It's high. And that, and I guess that just speaks to this whole like conversation we having about this supply chain issue. It's affecting all sorts of industries, right? And part of the reason for that, the reason it's so um it's been so devastating in, in a this particular way in such a short time is because when COVID hit, a whole bunch of companies and businesses were left with excess inventory. They couldn't move it because people weren't shopping, people weren't going to stores, people were only buying necessities, saving, hoarding money, just like they were hoarding toilet paper. It's crazy. Uh, and so the companies had to be kind of, they had to liquidate that entire inventory. A lot of companies had to do that at a loss. Um, just because COVID continued to extend, our, our projection of how long it was going to last continued to extend. So companies had to liquidate their inventories. And as we come back and that demand returns, they haven't been able to ramp back up um, because of the way in which that original inventory was lost, the way in which they took losses during that time. Um, some industries, like we even talked about uh, the oil and gas industry on this show, are kind of trying to squeeze folks, you know what I'm saying, uh, to get that money back and recoup that revenue. Um, so not saying that that's the case in the baby formula shortage, but just saying that across different industries, um, the ebb and flow, like that snapback of demand uh, is really messing us up. And it makes it hard to get everything from baby food to, yeah, computers, car parts. PS5. Crazy. Yeah. PS5. So one of the reasons why, um, one of the reasons that was said to have been the issue and why the FDA has not been able to respond quickly enough has come from the fact that the D in FDA, which stands for Food and Drug Administration, has for the longest time focused just on the drug portion of the administration, um, investing copious amounts of money into the drug element. Miles, you're familiar with investing a lot of money in drugs. How do you find the FDA's uh, role and complicity in this? First of all, this episode of the All The Way Live podcast is called Allegations. No, wait, it's called Allegedly, right? We'll just put that out there. Uh, and I think actually the Food and Drug Administration needs to needs to go hard um, because the opioid epidemic is a real thing, right? Um, so when I look at, when I zoom all the way out and look at government's approach to the war on drugs, which they lost, 
right? I can point out a lot of ways in which investments were wasted on issues where just the the approach was never going to be successful, right? I'm looking at you, dare, right? <laughs> but like, just say no, bro. Yeah, right. But when we look at in the last few years, when we look at what's happened with the with the opioid epidemic and the crisis, not saying that they've been investing in the most successful way either, but that it's, I I can appreciate that attention being applied, and 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 an approach that's more human, not criminalizing addicted opioid users, but treating it as a medical issue. I can appreciate that investment being made, even if I'm a little salty that when it was black folks and it was the crack epidemic, it was our fault. It was on us. But I digest. Speaking of the opioid crisis, I read a crazy statistic that said there are enough opioids in Florida alone to be able to give everybody in the U.S. three full pill bottles of opioids. Florida alone. And, you know, this kind of goes into like the the issue with, with the U.S. Like once you over cap, what, once something becomes overly commercialized and um, there, let's, okay, let's, let's look at the, whenever these types of things happen in the U.S., whenever an outbreak of this sorts happen, whenever there's like some um, malpractice that doesn't, doesn't logically make sense why I wasn't able to be stopped back in time. All you got to look at is the scoreboard for who donates the most to campaigns, right? So you have the NRA, which is the National Rifles Association. We're going to get into that. That's a huge contributor to to the to um, Congress for lobbying. And so pharmaceuticals, those two are the biggest, um, those two are the biggest funders when it comes to lobbying. So when you ask yourself, why is it that these issues are the ones that tend to be the hardest to ever overcome. The devil is in the chankura, like they say in South Africa. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Give them that truth. Hot. Hard to take sometimes. It's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to look at that and not feel like that's wild daunting because those are giants, right? The, the gun industry and the pharmaceutical industry. Like, none of us besides Elon Musk, and we know what he off doing, it can can hope to have the kind of cash it takes to combat that, right? So how do we organize as people um, to stand up and, and say, no, we can't prioritize profit over people's lives, which is exactly what's happened in both of those in both of those situations. Yo, if you want to learn more about the opioid epidemic in a kind of laid back way, there's a dope show um, on Hulu, I think, if you got Hulu. Find your friend that has Hulu. Give them your Netflix or your Spotify and make sure that you exchange so that you can watch on Hulu the show called Dope Sick. Um, it kind of chronicles the decisions made uh, by pharmaceutical companies to obscure the addictiveness of uh, opioids that were being prescribed uh, in a, on a mass scale and how we got to where we at. Uh, again, the prioritization of profit over people. Uh, and we got to say no. Say no. Not to drugs, but to drug companies. <laughs> na 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 Yo, listen, that's a perfect segue into our next section, man. Speaking about people that are putting profit over people. Um, another sad occurrence has happened in the U.S. And so let us get into our next segment of the show. <laughs> Thank you. 
This is this is the most difficult part of the show, man. This is the most difficult part of the show. Whenever we have to come in here and report on tragedies of this sort, it was not even last week. Even last week, we came here and we spoke about the mass shootings that had happened in Buffalo, New York. And less than a week later, here we are back again discussing the terrible school shooting that happened in um, Texas at the Robb Elementary School that saw the life of um, that's all the life of 22 people. 22 people were lost, 19 children were amongst the dead. Um, you know, the last time that this happened in, um, the last time that, the last thing to bring me to tears was George Floyd and was the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, where they killed just a bunch of kids, man. So this right here is, is additionally, it's sad again and it's unfortunate and it's angering and it's all these different emotions. Miles, you are in the U.S. right now. You are in the country. Um, you're in Chicago, which is a, a place that's that's also going through its own gun control crisis. Um, how does it feel when you see this happening in your country, bro? It feels like this is this is the part that is the scariest is how much can happen that we won't react to, right? And when I say we won't react, of course, the thoughts and prayers is coming, right? Of course, politicians everywhere are stepping up to their podiums and shaking their fists and shaking their head. Um, and I'm not even saying that everybody who who gets on a microphone and and, and speaks out is being disingenuous. Shout out to Steve Kerr, coach of the Warriors, uh, who got on to speak about that before their game with Dallas. Um, and I felt him, right? But we don't react in a way that's preventative. And that is some of the scariest. What we will allow to happen is, I think, some of the scariest things about our country. Because the list of events like this, which are horrible and tragic, um, but also each represented an opportunity for change, for us to grieve toward progress. And the list of times we haven't done anything, haven't done that, haven't been constructive, haven't learned our lesson, is what makes me, what feels unfair about this. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of the of the air in the room, but I'm just saying. I came on this show last week and just really just spoke like from the straight up heart, just like this is an opportunity to be human. Uh, this is an opportunity to not allow this to, to pass and for us to be numb to it. So to be sitting here again, repeating those same words, like, and not, I don't have anything else to give. And that's, what's unfair about this is I, if you, if you, pick one and you respond to it and you give you, if you really try and put your heart out there and, and, and try and learn from it and, and you right back there the next week before there's even time to do anything before we can even post the clip of us talking about the, having that discussion. That's what feels unfair about this is that I don't think we're going to do anything. And I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to feel like, I don't know what's going to take. I don't know what is if if I don't and if I don't think this is it. What does that say about where we at? So, what's it, so what we wanted to curate this conversation around 
um, and be intentional about is to be able to unpack mass shootings because clearly this is something that has been happening at at, at an alarming rate, at an increasing rate in the U.S., um, there's a lot of information around it. There's a lot of complexity around it. It, it is a it is a an issue that is it, it's not a, it's not one that has a single solution to it. But it's still important to be able to look at it from different angles and just uh, analyze. Okay, what are the facts about this? You know, and that's where my research took me to is just to truly understand. I what what even does mass shooting mean? So a mass shooting means if there's a shooting of four or more people in a single place, right? So since 2010, there have been 11,300 mass shootings. In the U.S., there are as many as six mass shootings a day, is what they're saying, right? So there, there are levels and tiers to how we consider what mass shootings are. This particular situation is, this particular situation, I think, why people continue to get riled up is that you had a 18 year old who had exhibited a lot of the preconditioned signs of someone that would be considered high risk was able to purchase two assault rifles 345 uh, cartridges of ammunition within a span of a week and nothing was be nothing was done this is somebody that ex uh, this is someone that exhibited some characteristics within their school um, from the counselor who had already been notified that he is a, a an issue and was shot his grandmother in the face, right? So there's there's that element of it, despite the science being inconclusive in a lot of things, because that is the case, right? There is no true correlation between, say, gun permissiveness and uh, mass shootings. There is no true correlation between, uh, say, mental health in particular states and gun and um, mass shootings. The, the, there's the correlation levels on the different things that would help you predict it are, are, are a bit low and they're very specific in where they are. But one thing for sure, one thing for sure, despite what the statistics say, is that an 18 year old being able to buy two assault rifles is just something that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think, and even as we spoke about it last week, right? I really wanted to highlight some of the limitations in the ways that we have these conversations. Um, and I think the reason, part of the reason that it's so difficult to pull any, in, any conclusive insights from the data that exists is that they, a lot of the data that's collected in mass doesn't differentiate between any type of instance where four or more people are killed, right? So that means domestic violence incidents are lumped in with Gang-involved shootings are lumped in with terrorist acts, are lumped in with these individual shooters, and a whole host of other potential instances, right? I don't even want to get fired up about the intentionality of us not specifically investigating this particular profile, because I do believe you can differentiate what's happening here from those other instances. I do think if there was... If, if the if the police were so inclined, they could create a database specifically of shooters and add your criteria, assault rifles, right? Um, random killings with no single or even like with no intended target, right? Uh, attacking people in large public places rather than encountering the person wherever they might be found or at their residence, when we there's a there is a specific category 
right? And I don't think it's that hard to figure it out. When we look at stuff like Columbine and Virginia Tech, we can just say school shootings, right? But there's a difference when somebody takes an assault rifle, which is absolutely the case in Columbine and Virginia Tech, and the Aurora Theater shootings and Sandy Hook and the Orlando nightclub shootings and the concert shooting in Las Vegas. Every single one of those has a semi-automatic rifle involved. So I don't think it's too difficult to narrow down the criteria of what type of event we're looking at. And I think background checks is a very simple first step that the resistance to even that measure of safety shows the hand of the NRA and the gun lobbyist. And I think it's, it's, it's that simple. How hard they're pushing back on even background checks shows, again, what we introduce, introduce this conversation with is a prioritization of profit over people. So one of the, on the background checks elements of it, what's being proposed is there needs to be extensive background checks. So if you see how the gun, uh, the process of getting a gun in South Africa is, it's quite a laborious and expensive task. You have about um, six months, uh, six months to eight month process. You need to uh, go to a class for two weeks. You need to pay, you need to prove your shooting. You need to prove where you're going to safe, put the gun safe, safely. You need to get, uh, you need to get, some people from your community to be able to vouch for you that you're allowed to be able to utilize to be able to carry a gun so there are there are a lot more steps that have been put into place so that um even if you are thinking of doing something uh nefarious at least you have an ability you have uh the safety of time and background checks that can come into play i think it's quite important to almost speak about the type of people that do these types of shootings Right, it's the type of people. Uh, it's 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 quite careless to say it's white kids that are doing it because this particular kid wasn't white; he was a Mexican child, he was a Latina child. So it's it, it's it's beyond just race. Although fifty two point three percent of mass shooters are white, um, that does not necessarily sorry sixty four point three percent sixty four point three percent of mass shooters are white, um, but that does not mean that the issue is greater than just the race itself. What is evident in all of these mass shooters is chronic frustration and uh, is chronic frustration and loserness, bro. Like all of these people feel like deep losers. It's true. Frustration, failure to commit, uh, failure uh, of commitment, externalization of blame. All of these people are what should consider losers in the, in society. And, um, the one thing we need to be looking out for, I guess, is young men who are losers that are unable to, that are externalizing their blame. That's the biggest indicator. It's not what your mental health state is going to be. That's not a biggest indicator. It, your your race, it could be, but it's specifically men under 30 that have chronic frustration, externalized blame, and are considered conventionally as losers. That is who's doing the killing. Considered conventionally as losers is crazy. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not a it's not a real thing. And I was just speaking to our willingness to look away from from categories that we can make. But um, I think you know the best version of ourselves is extending the fullest amount of empathy we can to those people. And I think that even that is a test. I know certainly of my humanity, right? To try and put myself in the the shoes of somebody who would go up and shoot like this case, I think is one 
where I'm specifically frustrated that I don't think anything will happen because it's awful that this dude was not that it's not awful. If you go and attack your peers who may have bullied you, that's still horrific. And and we need to curb that type of activity as well. But to go to, I don't think these kids weren't bullying him. This, these elementary school kids that had nothing to do with him probably had never met him. So there is a, there's a, there's an element of, and I appreciate what you said about the, the non-correlation with mental health, right? People who have mental health challenges are actually much less likely to harm anybody else than they are to harm themselves, right? So I don't think it's as simple as he was mentally ill. I think there's a specific set of circumstances that our society lays out that's exacerbated by um, the our patriarchal culture, which sets certain expectations on people, the way that we use social media and the disconnect between all the things that you see and all the things that you have and all the things that you think you see that others have that they don't, this whole culture of comparison. I think there are a lot of things that compound and put pressures on people um, to that and it and it warps their brain and it desensitizes them to violence. I think all of these things are elements, but it's really hard for me to to figure out what the right approach is when there are lots of kids that go through that and never harm anybody, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate. So how do we figure out what is what is the point of intervention, right? How do we be preventative without punishing people for their thoughts? But also, how do we I think I think a very simple step is to limit access to weapons that can make those thoughts, if carried out, so devastating. Right. And so there are many layers to this conversation that often just get skipped over because it's one side of extremes trying to fight another side of extremes. But you've brought up the laborious process that it takes to get a gun in South Africa. Right. You have to get forms, you have to get registered, you have a waiting process, you have interviews, you have to get vouched for by your community members. In Texas, you don't need a permit to buy a handgun. You don't have to register, you don't have to get a license, like, you just have to be 21. What I what I hate about the U.S., what I hate about the U.S. is that the complexity of what it would take to completely solve the issue is the excuse that the gun lobbyists will loot will use in order to not approach the issue at all. Granted, we might not ever get to a place where we're all completely safe, especially in the US where there's a bunch of people with guns. We might not ever get to that place. But to be to say because we'll never get to that place, it doesn't make any sense to enforce any sort of preventive measures makes no sense. Makes no sense. If I'm a parent, bro, if I'm a parent, I have to now be like, all right, let's invest in getting security guards at school. Like, I would have to invest in a private security guard for my child. Okay, but what, who, who, like, he better be G.I. Joe. He better be John Wick. Because, because, but, but think about it. We're still hiring people into these positions. And as we saw with the 12 that pulled up to the Ufalde shooting, putting, giving somebody a badge and a gun doesn't always make them a hero. Right? Let's talk about that. Let's let's get deep into that, right? Because there's been a lot of criticism that has been coming on how the police had, had handled that situation. What I don't think is fair, what I don't think is fair is the fact that all of these police, a majority of these police have never been in a situation like this. And there were reports that they did go into the building and they got shot at first and then retreated and, you know, uh, retreated back and then waited for backup, which 
took a, a long a long amount of time and parents were there trying to be able to get in it is a it is a it's it's like when we had that um astro world conversation it's a situation that you cannot you cannot prepare yourself for unless you've been in it and and when you even when you are in it there's no perfect circumstance that you've trained for that allows you to react in a formulaic way it's it's that's real but then don't speak out of both sides of your mouth don't tell me on one hand that we need to exalt these people and lift them up because they are the ones that put their lives on the line but when it's time to put their lives on the line they back chilling right so we we need to be realistic about what do the police do what are they good at what are they not capable of and how much funding should they really get right if you're not gonna handle that situation if you're going to let it unfold, if you're not going to save lives, then, okay, what is your job, right? And what position do you have in society? What authority do you have, right? And I'm not saying I have the answers, but I'm saying when I look at a situation with parents that want to save their kids and police that don't want to go into the building, but then on the flip side, we're talking about guns and saying that you need a gun to protect yourself, well, it seems like one group of people has a lot of contradictions to deal with. But think about how difficult of a situation it is you're walking into, right? There's a shooting. How many shooters are there? How many shooters are there? Where are they shooting from? Is the shooter a child? Is it an old person? You know, there's, there's so many different there's so many there's so many factors. But if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna set set a group of people aside and say that they are trained to respond to this type of situation, and you as a citizen are obligated to put your trust in these people, then they better know how to handle that situation. I can look at them as a human and say, it don't make you a shitty person to run from gunfire, but it make you a shitty cop. Yo, but this is, and this is, and this is, this right here is, is, um, this is, this is where saying defund the police doesn't make sense because a lot of people are saying from uh, on the side of good policing will say the people these guys are bad cops is because police don't get enough training there's not enough training that happens for police for them to be able to respond to these situations correctly oh that's easy we can get into the abolition conversation on that one that's easy imagine if the cops's only responsibility was to respond to high crisis situations which means no patrols which means not pulling people over for suspected for your taillight being out. Imagine if their only task was responding to active situations where people have weapons that are that people like assault rifles and stuff like that. Right. Imagine if they specialized in that. And we had another group of people that wasn't the police that yes, took a bunch of the funding that the police are now receiving because police are sent to mental health challenge calls. Right. Your, your, your family member is having a mental health challenge and crisis. Who do you call? You have to call the police. Even if you call the paramedics, they send in the police. So imagine if there was another group that was specifically funded to handle those types of situations without deadly force. And there was another group that was specifically funded to respond to active shooter situations regardless of whether they were receiving gunfire or not. But neither, neither of those two groups were also responsible for patrolling and policing and drug arrests and dealing with all of those types of criminalities. When I look at the police, I see a hundred jobs that none of them are doing well. None of them are being done well because it's one person. So when we say defund the police, I actually believe you're asking for that. When you say they're not trained to handle these situations, that make that the police cool, make that their only responsibility. And then we'll let's have people that aren't carrying guns handle all the things we ask police to do that they don't need guns for. 
so what the what the 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 police the chief police of uh, Uval of the Uval area had said is that the reason why it took it took them an hour to be able to finally go inside the school was that they were waiting for those specially trained police and they that the first responders that did come up onto the scene realized that they were out they that they didn't have the right type of ammunition protection they were getting shot at um, so they weren't able to be able to go into that situation the way they wanted to. And they said that they did call on the people you call SWAT, Border Patrol. Everybody descended up onto that school. It took a bit of time to be able to do it because how long does it really take to be able to respond to a mass shooting of that sort? And in that, you saw a lot of parents who were frustrated, just like, oh, let me in, let me in, let me in. As a parent, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be stopped from going into a school where I'm, where kids, where my kids are getting shot at. I, I don't. I couldn't imagine what that's like, but at the same time, it's responsible for the for the police to be like, we can't let you guys in at the moment. We can't even go in at right now. We can't even go in. We don't. We're getting shot at. We don't know how to be able to deal with this situation. So, I think it's one of those things where it kind of descends all, all the the flaws of the policing expose themselves in a large way. But what's what we can do? Uh, it, like, there's many fingers to blame. What is undoubt? What happened here is that somebody chose to do this, and they made it happen. You know, you can choose to do this at a grocery store in Buffalo, shooting old black people. You can do it at a church, and to to circle back and be like, but the policing, though, yes, the policing does have to be looked at. But at the end of the day, it was still a situation where somebody who might have been able to get prevented from getting access to those tools was able to get access to those tools, and they was able to act in this manner. So. Criticize yeah. the police. Let's criticize the police. I'm with it, but you cannot blame the police. No, and I don't blame. think that's what we've done. I think I think the course of this conversation from where we started was. I think I would I would say it's appropriate. I think we got to police because they do have a role in this, but I don't think we started there. And I don't I don't think it. it I agree with you that it's not fair to blame them for this happening. As the people that are responding to these situations and who have a role in our society where we glorify them for that role, I think we have a high standard that they need to be held to. Um, and if we, and if they can't live up to that standard, then we need to figure out who can respond to those situations and, and only allow those people to carry the weight that that accompanies in society. Um, just a I'll couple of other security. You're hiring private security. Okay. Hire me some too. Cause, um, <laughs> I want to know them too. I want to know security outside of the school. Private security but, uh, and and like a lot of people can't afford that. A uh, private security outside yep. of school. Like, that's what I said. I can't afford it. Hire me some too. But I think. But then. But we get oh, you are my security, dude. You're mine, dude. This is. <laughs> This is either a great or a horrible situation. But uh, I think that that I think again that's even hiring security is um you're responding to the symptom. Right. The symptom is the violence. What is the root cause? I don't think we've done enough research to understand really what is the root cause of these specific situations where an individual picks up an assault rifle and decides to kill, whether it's a specific group or a random group of people or their peers at school, defenseless victims. What is what is at the root of that and how do we how do we address it? Um a couple other things I just wanted to mention in this conversation that I'm still thinking through and working through is the NRA is so against even background checks and access for their, to, to certain types of weapons 
But then on the flip side, we're prosecuting kids in urban cities for putting switches on guns to transform them into those same weapons. And I just think that there's a conflict or there's a double standard in what we're and and who can have access to guns and who we champion it for and protect it as their right and who we say, you know, is a criminal just for possessing them. Uh, and this plays into when we see white kids pose with guns for their graduation pictures, but black kids do the same thing and it's taken a different way. Oh, now they're in a gang. Now they, oh, this gun can't be for protecting or for sport, but the white people use it for. So there's so many questions, so many areas and contradictions in this conversation. And I think it boils down to this moment where we have to make a decision that the line isn't the line isn't where it needs to be. It's too easy to get a gun to commit this type of act. So if we can't agree on background checks, what can we... That's well, That's the conversation I would actually be interested in having with somebody who's an advocate of assault rifles and access to them. What is the solution? Often I feel like I'm going to hear, it's more guns. Give more people more guns. Give the teachers more guns. Give me that's something else, bro. I don't like I that you. one. Go I ahead. We know the type of people that do it, right? Young men under 30. If you, young men under 30, you have to, we need to make, um, we need to mandate that everyone gets a, a mental check. We need to mandate that everybody gets a mental check. That's super mm. important. If you want a job, the same way you come with the CV, you need to be able to come with the mental check. Oh, look at that. You got one of my favorite people jumping into the conversation. This Gila saying more security needed in all public spaces, not human shield. She's very right in that. She's very right in that. And if the same way we can mandate that everybody that had a sickness that we didn't understand has to prove some form of validation that they've given a, a vaccine and we can get everybody vaccines and spend trillions of dollars to do that. Let's empower all the, let's empower all of the psychologists and therapists and whatever the case is. And if you want to get a job, if you want to get to graduate high school, if you want to go to university, whatever it is, you need to get a mental, you need to get a, an evaluation and make that free, make that Dang. free. Yo, that's Bro, that yeah. I've, I don't, I don't think I've ever even heard that, yo, like mandatory, like, therapy evaluation that's really interesting and if you and if you and if you bring up a red flag that means you are you have to you you cannot qualify to be able to get a gun under the circumstances because if they're not going to change how you get guns and you you're going to be allowed to just walk in and do it that's fine but make sure that the people that are getting red flagged are because we know the 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 criteria of those people. We know the criteria of those people. You know what I mean. And even that, I think, would be would be big. It, it, it starts in high school. Really, is where we're seeing this. It, it manifests itself in high school, and it rarely leaves the college area. So the people that do the mass shootings, like the Vegas shooting, who was done by an older gentleman, those are rare and far in between. Usually, it's people under thirty. So between high school and college, we should be doing rigorous mental health checks. Rigorous mental health checks. And anybody that brings up a red flag, you disqualify for it. And if you do want to be able to utilize it, it has to be under very specific circumstances. Yeah, I think I, we would have to be very careful about making sure that those examinations measure what they're supposed to measure and making sure that it limits things like access to a gun, but maybe not things like actually graduating from high school or college. But like, damn, that is that is 
That's brilliant, bro. That's brilliant. We gotta, yeah. we gotta. That's that's literally something that I want to research and read a book on now. That's you gotta, you, you got a brain there, bro. You got a head on your shoulders. Hey, and shout out to Mrs. Gill. You see her in the comments. That's where I get this information and this brain from. That's definitely where I get it from. Yes. Um, I think we've unpacked the situation, man. We've unpacked it. It's 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 sad, bro. It's sad, and it plays on mental health. It plays on your mental health. Already, we're we're paranoid. One third of people in the U.S. are afraid of mass shootings happening. A half of one third of people are afraid to go out because of that. Half of the people believe that it's going to happen in a place near them. Um, it raises things. For me personally, it's one of those things that sparks up my anxiety when I think of the U.S. Um, because it is a country that I love, man. But we we gotta get this under control, and unfortunately, it doesn't look like we will anytime soon. Big facts, man. It's the, these, this, there are certain conversations that we invite, engage on this podcast that I think are too big to solve, too big to cover, and and the whole hour even. You know what I mean? Like, so I appreciate you helping to talk through this with me. I actually feel a little bit better than I did at the start of this conversation. Um, still a lot of work to do, uh, a lot of anger and frustration to transform into productivity and into sustainable change but thank you for having this combo thank y'all out there for rocking with us um prayers up for everybody in texas and uh hold your head if you're going through it yeah man and this is a good place for us to be able to remind people man especially like forget the labels of you know uh, chronic frustration and conventional loser forget those those comments man what's important to realize is that we are the universe experiencing our experiencing the world in the form of ourselves so we are the universe we are god experiencing universe in this way you matter even if you don't think that you matter you do matter and this is what this shows for man this shows for is to remind people that they do matter you are seen um and there's and there's always a way forward there's always a way forward whatever you're feeling is just a moment and that's how world works man so we had to tell you that you loved speaking of love miles people love one thing that we do more than anything else that we do yo major facts damn man you had me tearing up man yeah we're gonna do recommended review man play the transition <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. One of our favorite things. We get to do one of our favorite things about one of our favorite things. Uh, Atlanta. The show. FX. Donald Glover. Uh, this show speaks to me, bro. I'll start there. Good place to start. I think uh, I think we can, we can conclude. Definitely, man. Season three of Atlanta. Donald Glover um, pulled up again with it. Um, the man is brilliant, bro. The man is absolutely brilliant. And this is what I hear to be the last season of Atlanta on FX. Oh, man. They changing labels? They on PG Lang? They are, there might be PG Lang in it, but it's also possible that the show, this might be the last season of the show. But season three, Atlanta, the final installment on, on FX, um, highly popular show based in Europe. Whole lot of social commentary, whole lot of content. I was very interested to hear what you thought about this show because I know you weren't too fond of 
you weren't too fond of some elements of the of season two. Um, and then in between season two and season three dropping, we had some pretty strong um, social commentary shows by black directors that came out. Um, also not black directors, Dave specifically. Um, and then you also had um, the bus down that came out. So there were the Carmichael show. So there were a lot of shows in between that popped up. Atlanta was started as the as the top show when it first came out to critical acclaim. Um, and so it's interesting to see their transition now from being a completely a story that focuses just on the black narrative to being what it is today in season three. Mm, yeah, you introduced that beautifully. Um, and yeah, you're right. The first season of Atlanta, I think, is one of my favorite like pieces of work. Like as a representation of culture, like I would recommend that to not necessarily anybody to enjoy it, but anybody if you really want as close as you can get to being immersed in a culture without and like that means jokes are going over your head but you're there right it feels like you're present amongst the among just black folks chilling in an authentic way like season one of atlanta delivers that amazingly uh season two follows up on that idea and i think there's this like creative incline there's a trajectory toward stranger concepts and a changing tone that is embodied or or hinted at in season two and fully manifest in season three and in a similar way almost to kendrick like this is a place where the early work was everything i ever wanted and more and i'm in a place where i'm now appreciating some of the later work for its artistic value and for some of the topics that it's trying to tackle but not necessarily um feeling as spoken to and I can appreciate that as a like a selfish thing because it feels like there are broader themes and they're talking to and about other groups. But I feel like both Kendrick and Donald Glover through Atlanta started with a focus that I felt very seen. And I think they're both with intentionality trying to make other people feel seen. And that's um, been interesting for me to watch evolve and to experience as a fan. Yes, artistically... Um, he's flexing. They're flexing on here. And and you have to give shout out to the whole writing team, to the director team. It's not just Donald Glover. You know, he makes it a point to be able to say that um, it is a huge collective. Even uh, Zazie Beats, you know, has some producer credits on on some, on some uh, one of the episodes. So the, it's, it's a very intentional show. And I love how you describe the creative incline that they that they do because it does they do take a, a huge creative front step in the concepts that they approach in in the topics that they come into starting in episode one um and i wanted to ask you about how you felt about um the what, what you felt about that episode where they adopted the the white people adopting the black kids the white lesbian couple um but even from that episode the episode is called three slaps um the check this out and I checked this out when I was re-watching it, right? The episode is called Three Slaps. He, it's a, there's, it starts off with the scene in the boat. That's scene one. And then from there, uh, freaks out. He gets grabbed. Uh, you know, the, the, the dude in the thing gets grabbed and then wakes up as a child in the classroom. And then, then wakes up at the end of the show as Donald Glover in the classroom. And when he's still a child, his grandfather goes up to him, slaps him three times, right? So, Clearly, they're extremely intentional in a Kendrick-esque way as well about putting in these 
these uh the, these different pointers into their creativity meaning that almost at every point they are trying to be able to get through with the message or trying to uh, convey certain certain concepts um, what did you think of the lesbian ladies adopting the black kids episode i thought it was a really looking back having finished the season it was a perfect introduction to what the season was going to be even the choice to use an episode that doesn't feature the main cast really until that last shot of uh of donald glover um to let folks know that this season of lana is going to be different and it's going to be broader and it's not going to necessarily lean on the main characters to deliver its message i think that's understandable when i first watch it i mean part of me goes okay uh you know, my boy that plays Paperboy was just in a Marvel movie. Lakeith Stanfield was just in The Harder They Fall and is getting a whole bunch of looks. This this cast has so many opportunities. It might be hard to bring them folks together. Maybe they're trying to fill some of that non-scheduled time with these other these other vignettes, right? Cool. Take it for what it is. I liked it. Didn't love it appreciated it for the perspective that it gave. But this is my issue with this season is that, and I'm again willing to say that it's a selfish one, but when Atlanta came out, Atlanta, both in the show, and I think there was an intentionality in the show embodying, Atlanta is a black city. The whole thing about going to Atlanta is that you're in a space where even though we're still under this American system, the majority of the cops are black. A lot of the politicians are black. A lot of the successful business people are black. And so everything is black on black. The interactions weren't based on the dynamic between black people as oppressed by white people. The whole show was black people getting to interact within their own community, exploring issues that black folks have with each other, exploring certain coded language and, and, and ways in which black folks that are excluded or don't know about a certain aspect of their own culture struggle to determine and, and figure out their identity. It was, uh, it was, it was so inclusive of the group that it was, that it was about to be, that it was about and focusing on. And now it's branching out. And I think that first episode illustrates to show, and maybe I don't want to say it's for white people, but there's a lot more energy and effort devoted to helping to sh explain this dynamic between black people and white people. And while that's cool and it's done beautifully, I miss the show being a warm place where I got to see black people not thinking about white people. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where they have so many different tools that are at their disposal. Like if you look at uh, episode nine, Rich Wigger, Poor Wigger, like they, the shooting, the film, the, the the scope that they shoot it in, the grain, the scenes, the the lights. Rest in peace, Kevin Samuels, who's on that episode too. They they do a masterful job in how they portray that story. And granted, one could say, um, you know, in in place in lieu of that episode, you could have done. Um, let's what, what's Alfred like in. Europe. Let's let's keep exploring deeper into the Alfred character, who I think him and Darius um, get robbed the most of their screen time on the show, which is a very interesting. Which, which I wonder why that's 
that's the case, you know. Um, definitely, it looks into the Vanessa character, um, the Earn character, but Al and um, Al and Darius tend to have a very limited, uh, very limited involvement in the show, right? You, it, it will tell a story about the things around them, but it's like diving into them up until the, the final episode where they're in Amsterdam. Uh, the last few episodes where they're in Amsterdam, they dive into that, but. Yeah, it seems like the intention was to be able to say, okay, we're going to show all of our tools off. We're going to show you how good our writing is um, as per episode 10, right? This is uh, the last episode where it's going to be like, we're going to make a movie out of this. It's going to be crazy and forget um, like forget plot logic and forget uh, storyline holes. We're just going to make a dope movie that looks into woman depression. And then we're going to look at, we're going to shoot some fly stuff. In, in black and white, we want to be able to show that. And we're going to have a bit of horror. And we're going to have a bit of social commentary. So I think this season, they wanted to display all of their artistic capabilities, which they did well. But where it loses, at least um, where it could turn some people off, is in the lack of continuity that the show might have, as we saw in season one, where each episode folds into another one quite um quite seamlessly but also some people might enjoy this new black mirror-esque approach to it like our producer has said was his favorite elements of the show that you don't know really what you're going to get out of it yeah it's in, it's it's everything it's trying to do i think it does well i think for me it's like watching a chef that i love make desserts make a whole bunch of salty stuff that's fire and it's like oh that's fire but make that cake though remember that cake and they like wings and i'm like remember that cake and they like risotto and i'm like remember that cake and they like sea bass you know what i mean but but everything that they that they serving up is dope i appreciated the reparations episode as like i don't know i don't it would be i'm interested to like this is something that made me want to look on the internet to see how people was taking it because i'm watching the reparations episode and i go as somebody who's like trying to figure this out in real time like what it actually looks like to get reparations for black people through a variety of different systems and institutions it's never going to look like individual cash transfers from white people that used to own slaves to black people that are the descendants of those people and it never is going to look like that but in watching it i'm thinking are people getting that or people are people think taking it literally as like this is what this is what black people and black creatives want to happen I saw it more as a depiction of this is what white people are afraid of. So let's play with it a little bit, but there's so much in this show and it. And I love that it doesn't baby the audience to like, tell you, this is what we meant. It just leaves it up in the air. And that's a bold artistic choice. Um, but I, yeah, there's so many different ways to interpret this show, to take it. I'm sure there were mad light skinned brothers that were offended by the Kevin Samuels episode. You know what I'm saying? Like, I appreciate that about the art. It's it's, it's fire, um, and I don't want to come off like I don't I don't like the show. It just was more of a more of a mixed bag, more of a mystery box than I expected. I did not know that it might be the final season of the show. So looking at it like that, I'm glad they got off so many of the different angles and perspectives that they were able to deliver on. So many moments still hit. Uh, so. I appreciate what Childish is doing. I'm, I'm interested to see where he goes next. I will be sad if this is the last season of Atlanta because this combination of characters, I wanted to see more of. Um, so long live Atlanta. But um, fire, fire show, recommend it to, to anybody. It's definitely weird. But if you're if you're looking for something that is has a different pace and that um, holds your attention in a different way, 
and, and show and knows how to pull at the heartstrings, but also show the beauty of people of color. Just the one. This your show. This your show. And if you have to give an official review on it, Miles, I would have to say um, I'd, I'd, I'd give this a four out of five, man. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd give this a four out of five. I, I, I love the way it's shot. Um, location, choosing Europe. I think I think um, black entertainers we've seen over time have had very peculiar uh, situations that happen in Europe as as a man of color in Europe too. There are situations that are like, okay, this is a bit interesting, but I think like they 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 portray that that uh, peculiarity quite well. It's shot well, it's written well. It's a it's a good trilogy of a season. If this is all we get from Atlanta, I'd say that they've put out uh, a stellar three seasons. Uh, out man so four out of five for me yeah four out of five reels this one is this one is real for real and if you like this check out uh bust down as my brother mentioned uh dave will be doing another episode where zway explains why he likes dave better than atlanta i still don't get it but we'll we'll get there um any other shows insecure um anything else that this that this reminds you of that people should check out uh, now you're just naming all the shows of black people. <laughs> um, Steve Harvey show. If you're into you're Steve Harvey show was fire. The Jamie Foxx show was fire. The, there's more out there than Martin and Fresh Prince, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Hey, dude, listen. We do this thing for a few reasons, but mainly because uh, we know. Oh yeah, we know. On this side in Chicago too, it's 12 p.m. on a Sunday, so some of y'all must have just checked in after church. Uh, appreciate y'all tuning in to hear Mo talking. After that, you could be anywhere in the world tuned into one of the too many podcasts that there are that exist. But you here rocking with us, we appreciate that. We're trying to figure the world out, man. We're trying to make sense of these headlines. We're trying to process in real time. We're trying to create an environment of carefully curated content for the craniums of anybody whose cranium hurts this 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 world to make your head hurt man just trying to wrap your head around it so we appreciate you being here we appreciate you tuning into this celebration of celebrating the celebration of life the celebration of how good it feels to be black don't it feel good's way it's my favorite thing bro shout out to Hassan on the boards shout out to you out there wherever you may be we hope it feels good to be you we hope you eat something delicious we hope you hug somebody you love like that Peace, water, we gone. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that, but is we live?